being reminded of your glory, Lord. Lord, your glory is so wonderful and beautiful, Lord. Can't wait to see it, Lord. This morning, I pray that as we get into your word, that we would get a glimpse of your glory, a taste of your glory. I pray, Lord, that we would understand and know that there are greater things than the things on earth and the things that we struggle with, Lord. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would impart these truths to us in a way that we can understand, Lord. I pray that your word would not return void or empty. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, can you say hello to someone before you sit down? All right, come on in. Have a seat, please. All right, I don't always dress up, but when I do, it's for a baby dedication. So we're going to start off with a baby dedication this morning. Come on up, you guys. So, this is our beloved Colin and Sarah, and our beloved Ozzy Edward Pinnell. So, how old is he now? Seven months. Seven, seven months? Mm-hmm. So that's Ozzy. You guys say hi to Ozzy. Hi, Ozzy. Hey, buddy. <laughs> What's going on? So, in case you're wondering what we're actually doing, uh, this is what we call a baby dedication. And uh, what this is, is us as a church body praying for Ozzy, that when he gets to the point of understanding that he, of his own volition, would receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, And this is praying for the parents that they will raise Ozzy in the ways of the Lord to the best of their ability and knowledge. And so um, we pray that you receive Jesus someday, buddy. (laughs) So um, maybe I could give it a shot here. Okay, let's pray really quick. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for Ozzy. What a blessing that he is, and as we look at him, we know that he is precious in your sight, that he is fearfully and wonderfully made, and you made him to have a relationship with you. We pray now that you would work in his heart and his mind to know you and to receive you as his Lord and Savior. We pray that he would serve you with all of his heart, that he would dedicate his life to you as we dedicate him to you. And we pray for Colin and Sarah, that you give them wisdom and understanding in raising him in the ways that he should go. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 (laughs) He He did it. All right. Good job, you guys. Thank you. Love you guys. We all love you. All right. That's cool. But we do have a, just a couple announcements, and if you want to take out your Bibles, go ahead and do that. We're in the book of Luke, and uh, there should be some Bibles under the seats if you need a Bible. But uh, one announcement is to let you all know that we are having a time change soon, and that's um, something that the world does, so it's not our fault that we do that, but... Uh, So we fall back, so you're going to actually lose some sleep. It's November 5th, so it's coming up quick. So just take note of that, and, you know, that way you'll make it to church at the right time. So so that's coming up really quick. Um, We also uh, would like to remind you and prepare you for Operation Christmas Child, which we're actually launching today. So how does it work? So right now we have boxes and you can pick up a box or two or however many you want to pick up that the boxes are out there in the atrium. So you can pick up a box or as many as you want. They have instructions about what to put in there and how to do it. So you just pick up these items and you put it in the shoe box and then you return it to the church, which the drop off is actually going to be in the foyer. There's a place you can drop those boxes off. And, um, and that's pretty much it. So you have until November 15th 
that's the deadline to do that. And so we've been doing that for, uh, I guess, 10 years now. But uh, it's been a blessing to be able to do that and to hear the stories. It's one way to get the gospel out to the whole world. And it's amazing. Uh, The gospel is basically the message of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, and how that brings salvation to those who receive it. So that's that. Um, If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn your attention to the book of Luke, chapter 9. And we'll be looking at the section of Scripture that covers verses 28 through 36. And as we do that, we're going to look at now, as we've been following the ministry of Jesus through the book of Luke, we're going to look at what he teaches his disciples in really what is a visual message in regards to how we are to live our life effectively in this world, having the right perspective. Jesus gives them the perspective that would allow them to be willing to do whatever, whenever, however God would ask them to do it. That their faith that would lead to their obedience would be driven by their understanding of their future. In other words, they would be able to live from above down instead of living from down up. What do I mean by that? Well, the perspective that Jesus gives them and wants us to have is that our life is going somewhere. Our life has purpose and meaning. And it will end somewhere. And God wants us to focus and understand where our life is going to end up so that we can properly live our life before we get to that point. I'd like to share a few scriptures with you in that regard. So Psalm 90 verse 12 says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. James chapter 4 says that our life is but a vapor that appears for a little time and then it vanishes away. Psalm 84 says, Blessed is the man whose strength is in God and whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. Matthew 6, 19, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. Colossians 3.1 Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is now hidden in Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you shall also appear with him in glory. Luke chapter 9, verse 25 says, For what profit is it for a man who gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words... Of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and the holy angels. Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter that talks about faith and living by faith. It gives us examples of those in the Old Testament who have lived by faith. And it says in Hebrews eleven thirteen, these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They were assured of them, they embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth, and how they desire a better, that is, heavenly country. 
And those scriptures, and it is the teaching of the, of the Bible, is that we are to live our life with our hearts and our minds set on eternity, set on the things that will last forever. And that's how we're to live our life with eternity always in our view and always in our sight. That actually affects and changes the way we live here on earth. So as we take a look at the scripture in verse 28 of Luke chapter 9, you'll notice that Jesus says, or it says that it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James, and he went up the mountain to pray. So what's going on here? We're picking up the story, obviously, as the narrative is happening. And Jesus has been continually working to get the disciples to understand who he is and to appropriately respond and act accordingly. And Jesus, prior to this, just prior to this, he asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And that was the big question. That was the question that Jesus had been leading to ask. That was the question that Jesus had been building his resume, so to speak. He'd been building the understanding of the disciples by teaching them and demonstrating to them who he is. And he asked the question, who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am, Peter? And Peter made this confession. You are the Christ. When he said that, he unfolded the enormity of who Jesus actually is. He opened this envelope that says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God, that Jesus himself is nothing short or nothing less then God, the creator, eternally existent, that has taken on human flesh and blood and has come into the world. That very thing, we call that the incarnation, God became flesh. That's a mind-blowing thing that God did that actually causes many people to stumble. How can God become a man? Why would God become a man? Why would he subject himself to the things of this world? And there's one answer to that question, love. That's why he did that. That's why he, what we'd say he descended, or you could say he condescended, he he took on a human body, but he is the eternally existent creator of everything, the Alpha and the Omega. He is where everything will end up, where everything will be. He is that, and then he came into the world because he loved us so much that he was willing to do that, to take our place and sin and judgment. That is the whole message of the gospel, that, that God took our place. So that, that is the ultimate, undeniable fact of God's love for mankind. This is what separates Jesus from anything that there could possibly, possibly be. This is what puts Jesus in a different category than any other religion, any other religious figure, any other religious guru, it's because the one difference is Jesus is God the creator, and everything else is the creation of God the creator. So the difference between creator and creation, that, that's a good way to think about it. And so this, this miracle that's often overlooked of the incarnation that God took on a human body, it's often overlooked of the, the miracle that the incarnation is and that he lived and dwelt among us. And so Jesus now, he puts a little pause 
on this miracle of him taking on human flesh, dressing himself in a human body. And he's doing that. It's very interesting because he's doing that because the disciples that he is going to reveal who he is, his self in his true state, they're going to need to know who he really is fully and completely in order to accomplish what God has called them to do on earth. And so this event that we're looking at, it, it actually comes on the heels of this resistance of the disciples to embrace the plan of God for salvation. Especially seen in Peter that they, they wanted to embrace Jesus as Messiah, but not a suffering Messiah. Not a Messiah who is coming to bring salvation eternally to all those who believe, but they wanted their Messiah to come to put them in a better position on earth, to conquer the earth in a temporal way, a temporary way. They wanted their life just to be better in this world. And so if you notice in verse 21 of Luke, just go up a little bit more of chapter 9. As Jesus makes, oh, I'm sorry, as Peter makes this confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and with that, there's, there's so much meaning that comes from that. But basically, the correct identification of who Jesus really was and is. And so in verse 21, you'll notice it says, Jesus strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one at this time. So the, the disciples are there to hold this information about fully and completely who Jesus was until Jesus died and rose again. So here's what he says in verse 22. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things. See, that's where things go south. That's where people start to push back, start to disagree, start to get uncomfortable. God suffering, almighty, all-powerful God suffering, almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God being arrested by human beings, taken and grabbed and brought into the praetorium to be investigated and and that God who's creator of the whole universe and sustains the whole universe, he's going to be flogged. His skin that he took on is going to be opened up. They're going to shove a crown of thorns on his head, causing him to be mocked and to bleed. And then they're going to put him on a cross and nail him there. What kind of God is that? It's a God of love. We find that Jesus was in full control of all these events. Jesus, at a moment, he could have said the word and he had been freed from the situation. All those who were trying to arrest him, he could have killed in one shot, but he didn't do that. Why? Because he loved us so much. But he was in full control of these events, even so much so it was recorded that at the right exact time, it was Jesus himself who committed his spirit to the Father. In other words, he said, okay, now it's my time to die. So he gave his life. His life wasn't taken from him. John 3, 16, so God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. The whole point was God was giving out of His love for us so that we can be saved eternally. But notice as in, in John chapter 9, verse 22, the Son of Man, He says, must suffer many things, 
be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and then be killed, but then he says, and then he'll be raised on the third day. So he's actually prophesying in real time about the fact that, hey, I'm saying this, and this is how you're going to know for sure that I am who I say I am, because I'm going to come alive again. So imagine his disciples hearing this, who are confused about what he was going to do and who he was, and they hear Jesus say, I'm the Messiah. You just said it. You confessed it, Peter. I'm the Messiah. And then right after that, he says, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to be killed. And they're thinking, what do you mean you're going to do that? But then he says, but I'll be raised again. And this is, a, this is proof. This is a demonstration of God's sovereignty, God's power, God's uh, being over all space, time, and matter. And then he says this in verse 23. So he says to them, now you... This is what's going to happen to me. So you, if you want to follow me, look at verse 23. If, if anyone wants to come after me, if you want to follow me, here's how you do it. Deny yourself. Can't live for yourself. Take up your cross. Surrender your will to God. Do that daily and then follow me. So then you say, well, why would anybody want to suffer, be rejected, have a hard time? Why would anybody want to do that? Because of what he says next in verse 24. If you want to save your life, you will lose it. That's why. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's why. It's because of the eternal things. It's because of the things that never end. It's because of where we will be once we live, leave this earth. That's why we'd be willing to lose our life or give our life to Christ. That's why. Because of what will happen because of what we do. That will save our soul that way. And what he's saying is, is to surrender your life to Christ, to let him be the master of your life. Let him dictate and control, and shouldn't he? Because he's God. Wouldn't that make sense? But then he says in verse 25, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? So it's hard to escape the understanding, the idea that if one does not do what Jesus just said, that their eternity would be defined as destroyed or lost. So one's eternity is at stake, is what he's saying. And so that brings us to what we're looking at now. So you imagine the, the disciples pondering this for eight days. For eight days, or man, I don't this. Jesus is Messiah, but what do you, he's going to suffer and he's going to be rejected, and and then he's telling us to do that too. What kind of deal is this? This eternity must be pretty good. It must be better than the world, and that's why Jesus now in this account does what he is going to do. Eight days later, he takes Peter, John, and James, three particular individuals that are going to be primarily responsible for carrying the baton of the ministry of Jesus. Everything that they learned from Jesus, everything they saw from Jesus, everything they were taught about Jesus from Jesus, they were going to be the ones that would carry this on. So they had to be convinced because we saw it, it was hard for them to receive this. So Jesus, eight days later, he takes them up on a mountain to pray. One of the best ways to 
be convinced of God is to simply come to Him and pray and ask Him to reveal Himself to you. But as he prayed, look in verse 29, as he prayed, so while his prayer is going on, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah. So eight days later, all this teaching that was hard for them to understand and they were struggling with, Jesus takes them on a mountain. We're not sure exactly where that mountain was and, and what there's speculation about that, but that's not what's important. What's important is, is while he is praying, his appearance changed. In Mark's account and Matthew's account of this, they called it being transfigured. Or in other words, that he metamorphs or changed from inside out. And what was happening was Jesus was putting a pause on the miracle of him taking on human flesh so that they could see him as he really is. That's what was happening. They were getting a privileged glimpse of who Jesus really is, of who the glorified Jesus really is, of the majesty and the holiness of Jesus. They were getting a little glimpse of what that was like. They were getting an understanding of his deity, of his majesty, of his glory, and as Jesus is there on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, he then begins to talk with two significant figures that they would be aware of, Moses and Elijah. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. As you bring these two figures together, what you're seeing is all the law of the Old Testament all the prophets of the Old Testament all really were testifying to Jesus Christ. They were testifying to who Jesus Christ is and who Jesus or what Jesus Christ was going to do. This also tells us a lot about our state in eternity, our state in glory. This tells us that we will still be us in glory. This tells us that we will be recognizable in glory. I hope I'm recognizable more in like my peak state, <laughs> my prime state. I, hope, I, I think we all will. We probably wouldn't recognize each other if we were, but when we get there, we're going to all recognize each other. We're going to be able to talk with one another. We're going to be able to recognize one another. We're going to enjoy fellowship with one another, so we get a little glimpse of what that is like in eternity. In verse 31, it says, Who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus is actually talking with Moses and Elijah in the glorified state. And as they're talking and conversing, Jesus is talking about really the gospel. He's telling them and explaining to them what he's going to do and about what's going, going to happen. And from this little section, we find something so significant in how we're to live our life now. We're to live our life now with our eyes on our future glory. Do you know how that affects the everyday annoyances? Do you know how that affects the selfishness, the self-centeredness, the preoccupation 
with what's going on in our life right this second, when we have a bigger picture, when we have an above-down view, when we know that our future is going to be in glory, when we know that our loved ones in Christ are going to join us in that celebration for all eternity? Do you know how that changes our perspective of what we stress about and worry about so much on a daily basis when in reality we won't even remember those things anymore? Many of the things that you and I are worried about now, when we're in eternity, we're not even going to remember those things. Many of those things that are causing us to lose our joy, to be discouraged and depressed, that are ruining our countenance and our joy in our everyday life, those things are nothing in comparison to the future glory that will be revealed in us. The disciples, they needed to know this. Because the particular disciples that we're looking at, their future in this world was to be killed for their faith. John did not get killed for his faith, but they tried to kill him for his faith. And he survived it because God had more planned for him. But the point is that now in this life, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Meaning that as we get closer to the time of our departure, to the time of going home, to the time of fulfillment of our calling and our role that God has for us, that we are internally changing to be more fit and more like Christ each and every day. And that's why Paul in Romans 12.2 says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. So how much do we think about heaven? How much do we think about eternity? How much do we meditate on the day that we'll stand face to face with Jesus Christ? This is a top-down view. This is living with a mindset and understanding of eternity and looking at all that happens to us in this life in regards to that eternity. The account goes on in verse 32 where this future glory now is described as forever good. So in verse 32, Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. What a way to wake up. And they saw the two men that stood with him. And then it happened. As they were parting from him that Peter said, To Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. So Peter's response to what he saw was, I don't want to ever leave this moment. I don't want to ever go down the mountain again. I don't want to have to deal with what's down there. And he said what is going on here on the mountain with Jesus in his glorified state, the revelation of the kingdom of God right before them, a glimpse into their eternity, what they were experiencing was so good. 
But they didn't want to have to change that. And so Peter's response, not knowing what he's saying, Jesus, how about we build little tabernacles and we can all just stay here. We can camp forever. Partially of what Peter was alluding to was the Feast of Tabernacles, which the Jewish people would celebrate. And the Bible tells us will also be celebrated in the Millennial Kingdom. So Peter's thinking, this is it. We finally reached our goal. Jesus, I confess him, he is the Messiah. And now we're up here, we're going to enjoy the Messiah forever, and let's just camp and forget everything else. And it says he didn't know what he was saying. Why did it say that? Because he didn't realize that the way to get to that eternal state of glory, hear me on this, the way to get to that eternal state of glory was through suffering, through the cross, that there could be no eternal state of of glory unless one goes through the cross. In a sense, Peter again was trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross. Peter did that when he confessed Jesus as the Christ, and he tried to get Jesus from not going to the cross. He didn't know what he was saying. What does that tell us? That tells us that there's only one way to access future, forever good, and it's through the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. One way. There's no other way. And Jesus tells Peter that, which was not what he wanted to hear, was not good news. But as Jesus Explain that our state and condition here in this world is temporary and fleeting, but determines our eternity. Now determines our eternity. What we do with Jesus now, that's the only decision that we will make that will affect how we live forever. And this is what Jesus is getting them To understand. And finally, in verse 34, while he was saying this, while Peter was saying things that he didn't know what he was saying, so he was interrupted. Peter was interrupted. God the Father saying, Okay, Peter, that's enough. You're not, you don't know what you're saying, and so I'm going to intervene and bring the truth into the situation. What does that tell us? It tells us that there is an absolute truth. It tells us that our opinion doesn't matter. Our feelings and our emotions about something doesn't matter. Our background doesn't matter. Only the truth matters. So when Peter is speaking... His truth, so to speak. God the Father interrupts in a way saying that there's one truth. And Peter, what you're saying is not that truth. So while he was saying in verse 34, while he was saying this, it says a cloud came. So they're on the mountain. Jesus is transfigured. He's bright and shining in his glorified State Moses and Elijah are there with him talking. And while he was saying this, Peter blurted out what he said. A cloud came and overshadowed them. This is a picture of the glory of God. This is a picture of what the Bible calls the Shekinah glory of God. We see this. When God passed by Moses, who had to hide in a cleft of the rock because the glory would be too powerful, we see the Shekinah glory of God passing by. We 
see this as the Shekinah glory led the children of Israel in the wilderness and we see the Shekinah glory of God coming to the tabernacle and dwelling in the holy place. This was something profound. This was something deep. This was a glimpse of eternity and it overshadowed them or overwhelmed them or enveloped them. And as this happened, their reaction was that they were fearful as they entered the, cl- the cloud. Why were they fearful? The, there's a common thing that we see in the Bible when people encounter the presence of God. And one, the fear comes from the power of God that is so frightening, but also the unworthiness of the individual when one is in the presence of a holy God. John himself in Revelation 1.17 said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. In verse 35, A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, Hear him. God the Father is recognizing and identifying for Peter, James, and John that this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit co equal. And notice God the Father says, hear Him. In other words, listen to Him. Do what He says. He, Jesus, the Father is saying, He has the words of eternal life. Hear what He says. He is the truth. Hear Him. And when the voice stopped... Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days of any of the things that they had seen. And so this is the third point, how we are faithfully grounded on earth when we live by hearing what God says, particularly in the word of God and live according to the word of God. When we do that, we are faithfully grounded in this earth, walking and living our life as sojourners, going home to our forever home, to the forever good and the future glory that will not end. Did this have an impact on Peter? You bet it did. Peter, in his letter the second letter in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 and 18, he says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables. You know why he's saying that? Why should anybody believe what anybody says? Why should you believe what I say? You shouldn't. Why should you believe what another pastor says or another priest says or another person that comes to knock on your door with a magazine says. Why should you believe anybody, what anybody says? Peter didn't fully believe what Jesus said until what Jesus said was validated in an undeniable way. Peter is reporting that he's no dummy. Peter is reporting that he didn't follow a legend, some sort of myth or mythology or Greek uh, gods or Roman emperor gods. and he He didn't follow any of those things. And he admits that there are cunningly devised fables, he says. What does that mean? He admits that there are people that are pretty clever in coming up with 
how God is and how eternity is and how to get there. There are people that are very crafty. And he's saying, we didn't follow that. He says, when we made known to you, meaning when Peter conveyed the truth of God, he says, the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he says this, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He's talking about the transfiguration. That'll really do something to you, wouldn't it? If you saw Jesus in the flesh and you saw miracles that he did that demonstrated that he was outside of time, space, and matter, that he had power over nature, over demons, over sickness, over death. And then you saw him peel back the veil of his flesh a little bit to see who he really is. But not only that, and then you saw this man die. You saw a spear piercing his side with blood and water coming out. You would see the Roman soldiers who didn't break his legs on the cross because that's what they would do when they wanted to hasten the death of the person on the cross. So they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. And you saw them take him down and wrap him and put him in a tomb, a cave tomb, and roll the stone in front and put Roman soldier guards whose life was at stake if the tomb was tampered with. You put them in front of the tomb. And then you remember Jesus said he would come to life again three days later. And then three days later, you're told by some women followers of Jesus that they went to the tomb on the third day and he wasn't there. And in Peter's sandals, you run back to the tomb and you look in and it's rolled back and he's not there anymore. But not only that, A little bit later, you're talking to him. You're touching him. You're eating with him. This is why Peter is saying that before I was willing to deny Jesus, even when they took him away, I was willing to deny. But when it all came together, I was willing to die for him instead of deny him. And he writes later that I was an eyewitness to his majesty for he received from God the honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on that holy night. So Peter records the fact that he was an eyewitness and he was now willing to die for what he knew was true so that you and I can know the same love of Christ that he came to know. And to know the same love of Christ that he came to know is then to receive that love by faith, which means our future glory is just waiting for us. That we have the assurance 
because of the eyewitness testimony, because of the resurrection of the dead, that every believer has a plan that God has mapped out. And going to eternity is simply when we finish that plan. Paul said, I finished my race. And now my departure is at hand. So death for a believer means that we're finished with the struggle and the pain and the chaos and the difficulty in this world. And it's time for us now to enjoy God forever. This is what it means to live from above down. And to live for something greater than ourself, greater than anything that is in the world. We live for the glory of God. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and your word that is true. It's a light. It's a lamp into our feet. And now, Lord, I pray that we would listen, as your Father said on the Mount of Transfiguration, we would listen to what you say. We would hear you now, Lord. We would hear the words of Jesus, follow me. We would hear the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That we'd hear the words of Jesus, that he is the living water, that he is the bread of life, that he is the Alpha and the Omega. That we would hear what Jesus says, and not only hear, but surrender our will to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for those who are not saved this morning. I pray for those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. I pray now that they would take the command of the Father to hear Jesus, hear Him, turn to Him, and surrender your life to Him. And I pray for those who are believers in Jesus Christ this morning. I pray that you would take heart in this world. You'll have tribulation. Be, be of good cheer. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's all stand. We're going to worship the Lord. One last song before we go out. And if anybody would like prayer this morning, feel free to come on up as we begin to uh, worship the Lord. Our prayer team will be up front. They'll be happy and excited to pray with you for whatever the need is. So God bless you and let's worship the Lord.